Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find us every Monday right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Or if you're near your computer and you're listening, jump on to our Facebook live stream because you can see one of the cutest things you'll ever hope to see. The latest from Disney in support of The Lion King, a moving, walking, talking Simba who is wandering all over the desk and talking right now. Uh, But in addition to being right here every Monday, you can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad and print and online 24-7. And if you ever miss us live, you can find the show on Stitcher, Podbean, BehindTheLensOnline.net and uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and numerous other places. So, there's no reason for you to ever miss an episode of Behind the Lens. And today, I'm so I'm very excited about today. Joining us live today is writer, director, editor Adam Marino, talking about his new film that is a thriller with a slight horror bent, um, called Ring Ring. Uh, And it's a doozy, people. And you're going to hear my exclusive pre-recorded interview with Jamie Bell talking about his new film, Skin, which opens this Friday, the 26th. And I've got to say, wow, wow, wow. Mark my words. Come awards time, you're going to hear Jamie Bell being touted as a best actor possibility. Uh, I would like nothing better than to see Jamie and Taron Edgerton, the two Rocketman co-stars, go head-to-head for Best Actor. Taron for playing Elton John. Jamie for playing uh, real-life former neo-Nazi skinhead, white supremacist, um, Brian Widner. Uh, And and we're going to get into skin in a minute. But... Also be on the lookout for award, come award season, for Jamie to possibly be picking up some best supporting nods for playing Bernie Taupin in Rocket Man. So this award season is going to be great. And once you see Jamie in skin, I think you're going to be right on board with me. This is a performance unlike any you've ever seen from him. Uh, and it is astounding. If we've got time, you're also going to hear my exclusive with writer-director Guy Nativ, uh, writer-director of Skin, and his journey to making this film. And the one thing that, that Guy and Jamie both have in common is their praise for producer Oren Moverman, Oren, one of the gutsiest filmmakers that I know. Uh, he does not step back from controversy and giving a voice to those issues a voice needs to be given to. We saw it in The Messenger. We saw it with Rampart. Uh, We saw it in the exquisite film that he did with Richard Gere addressing homelessness. Uh, Now we see it as a producer, Norman, Diane, and now Skin. 
And let me tell you, skin, it is brutal. It is visceral. It is at times difficult to watch. But this is the real deal, people. This is an inside look uh, into the life of <clears throat> Brian Widner and how he finally made the choice to get out of the, the white supremacist neo-Nazi uh, lifestyle that he was in. Uh, and because he worked so closely with Guy in writing the script and worked with Jamie in Jamie preparing for the role um, the authenticity is, and the honesty that we see unfold is something that is rarely seen and is unparalleled given the subject matter at hand. Timely, topical. Uh, this is going to blow you away come Friday. But before we get into Jamie's interview, we've got to say it, Avengers Endgame, it is King of the World. Uh, as was even so acknowledged by James Cameron uh, with a beautiful tweet to Marvel. Um, Avengers Endgame has overtaken Avatar as the highest grossing box office film of all time. Now, mind you, though, this is an uncorrected dollar amount for inflation. These, this ranking does not take into account inflation over the decades because when you take inflation into the account, the number one all-time box office champ, still yet and always, gone with the wind. Um, so, but this is great, and this was a great weekend for Marvel fans, Disney fans. Uh, at Comic-Con, great announcements came out. Okay, I'm, just, I'm thrilled we're going to get our Loki TV series on Disney+. Plus. Tom Hiddleston is definitely on board. I mean, that's really, who else is there besides Loki? Um, we've got WandaVision coming with Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany. And Elizabeth Olsen is also going to be in the next Doctor Strange movie, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, which now is being touted as the first quote-unquote horror film uh, that's going to enter the MCU. Scott Derrickson's going to be directing. Uh, so that should be really interesting. Hawkeye is getting his own se series on Disney+. Plus. Of course, the biggest, the biggest news is Thor. Love and Thunder. Taika Waititi is back directing. Chris Hemsworth is back. Tessa Thompson is back. And what rocked the world, Natalie Portman is going to be picking up the hammer as Thor, goddess of thunder. For those of you that know the comics, um, her character of Jane... Um, eventually does become Go Thor, Goddess of Thunder. So I'm not surprised to see the film taking this direction. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out and this interaction between uh, Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie, uh, Natalie Portman's Jane, and, of course, Chris Hemsworth's uh, Thor. We're also going to be getting Black Widow feature film. That's going to be the first one out of the box, May, 20, May 1st, 2020. That's just next year, less than a year away. Um, and that, of course, is going to star uh, <clears throat> Scarlett Johansson. And coming on board is Florence Pugh, who we have all just fallen in love with the past few years. From Lady Macbeth to Fighting With My Family, 
I can't wait to see what she brings to the table. And of course, further down the road next year, we're going to see the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, and that's going to be, is that going to be, uh, okay, that's going to be on Disney Plus, on the streaming service. Then we've got Eternals that's coming out. Angelina Jolie is on board, and I'm very curious to see how this film plays. Chloe Zhao uh, is going to be directing. Uh, so this is going to be interesting. This, is, I think, is going to be akin to Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck jumping in to Captain Marvel. Uh, no action, no VFX background, and coming in and delivering a superlative story. So I'm really anxious to see what happens with the Eternals. And that comes out November 6th of 2020. But all I can say is Disney Plus, take my money. Just take it. Just take it all now. Uh, because while I spend so much time watching movies, uh, I don't have time to subscribe to streaming services. And, but this is one streaming service I absolutely am going to be subscribing to. I must have Disney Plus uh, for even with just what was announced at Comic-Con. And then we know more of the Disney library is it will be available. You can't go wrong. And for $6.99 a month, I'm in. I'm not complaining. I'd even give you more. To see some of it, I'd give you more. But... So this is fantastic stuff that's coming down the pike for Disney, for MCU, and of course at the box office this weekend, The Lion King. And The Lion King broke more records for the biggest PG opening ever and the biggest July box office opening ever. So Disney is on an absolute roll. And, of course, you can all get your very own, if you're looking at Facebook, at the Facebook live stream on AdrenalineRadio.com, um, you can all go get your very own Simba, this cute little thing. I think he's around 100 bucks in the Disney store. You can order it online. But I know uh, Pam and I have already spent half an hour playing with him this morning. I'm sure we will spend more time playing with him. But let's get on with the topics of today's show. Uh, we're going to start with Skin, and we're going to start with Jamie Bell, my exclusive with Jamie Bell, playing Brian Widner. Uh, this is an intense character. It's an interesting character, and it raises a lot of questions for us as, an, as the audience and also for Jamie as an actor about delving into the darkness of this psyche and how a young man can go down this path Um and then find redemption. Uh, it's not giving away any spoilers because this is a true story. And Brian Widner, with the help of a black activist, Daryl Lamont Jenkins, a former uh, Air Force vet um, and one of the founders, I believe, of uh, One People's Project. Uh, Daryl helped Brian get out of the group helped him establish a new life, uh, and even hooked him up with, as part of that new life, full tattoo removal of, over his body, which took more than a couple of years. Um, it's an astounding story. It is heart-wrenching. Some of the things in the film, as I said, are brutal. 
Uh, and the film starts with an actual rally. That guy insisted he didn't want stock footage. Guy Native actually staged and shot a rally with, I believe, over 400 people. Um, the film opens with a bang, and it goes up from there. You will be on the edge of your seat. There are moments that your, your stomach may be turning. But grounding this film is Jamie Bell's performance. So take a listen now to my interview with Jamie Bell talking about skin and embodying the skin of Brian Widner. I think that come full award season, we're going to hear your name bandied about best supporting uh, as Bernie and Rocket Man, but do not count out a best actor for your performance here. Jamie, you, oh, thank you. this is one of the finest performances of your career. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. I really, I can't, I can't even, I'm bad on that. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, I mean, number one, I know when Oren. When Oren yeah. picks somebody for something, there is so much care and thought that goes in, and he knows this is the best person. The minute right. I heard you were doing skin, I knew yeah. this was going to be a performance to behold, and it oh. is. I love I love Oren. I'm such a big big fan of his, and the way that this actually came around and ended up in my lap is because I met him on a film that he was considering directing that... Um, it was a part, and it, you know, for me, and we, we just kind of had a general meeting, basically. We had a great, like, heart-to-heart, and we talked less about the project, which is more about life, and um, really had a great time with them. And, and then, I think literally two weeks later, this script turned up with a note from him saying, this is one of my great friends, you have to do this movie. Um, and, and that's how, the, you know, the conversation between me and Guy kind of started. So it's all kind of down to Oren and, and our first meeting together. I, I, this is a role unlike, I mean, after seeing you in Donnybrook, and I even told people, if you haven't seen Donnybrook, you've got to see it, because I view that kind of as a precursor to what we now see here with you right. pl with you playing Brian in terms of the physical transformation and the emotional transformation. How? What did you go through? It's one thing to physically transform into this character, and then sit in a makeup chair after that to get tattooed. But this is a huge emotional transformation. How did you channel that and find that? Uh, I, I mean, just kind of basing everything off of the search and reading books and uh, looking at um, interviews, obviously going to visit with Brian, talking endlessly and out, you know, for hours and hours and hours with Guy about the screenplay and everything. Um, the, the hardest I mean let's not forget the makeup is doing so much of the work mm -hmm. the makeup alone and the contacts and the teeth and the, the wig and a little bit and, you know and, and everything else it's just, when you put that on camera it's, it's a striking thing to look at it's a scary thing to behold the thing that for me was the most difficult I think that is so far away I think from who I am as a person is just the sense of complete detachment detachment from people detachment from life detachment from love detachment from compassion um, empathy, like that of inhabiting that um, on a daily basis, you know, for six weeks while we shot this movie, that was always the um, the challenge and the thing I found most difficult because I could never quite believe it or believe what I was was doing fully. Um, but obviously, all the makeup and everything else helps, but that sense of of um, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just, um, detachment from 
humanity to a degree is just so not who I am. And that was always going to be the hardest challenge in the early stages of the movie was convincing people, wow, this is a man who's dedicated his life to hatred and now he's so lost in it that he's drinking himself to death. He's basically, he's basically unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, Something that you really bring to the character is once Brian meets up with Julie and her family and starts become in, becoming involved with them, we really start to feel the push and pull within Brian as to what he wants to do. He still feels this loyalty to Ma and to Fred, but uh, and he wants to keep the peace, but he wants this new life. Um, where yeah. in terms of shooting, were you shooting those sequences? Because something tells me you weren't going chronologically. So finding that emotional beat when, when Brian really starts to change... Was that, you know, was that difficult to tap into that it moment? It was, it, to be honest, it was conversations that I'd had with Guy um, that we would talk hours and hours and many coffees and meeting up and, you know, uh, going away and writing emails and everything. I was trying to identify, like, where, what is the point when this person chooses, I'm out, like, I'm done with this. And we always kind of seem to disagree. <laughs> we, we could never kind of quite be in agreement on where, where we think that transition or where that decision really takes place. Um, my argument was always, I don't think it's ever a conscious decision that someone decides, to, you know what I mean? Like that someone, they just end up doing it. They just end up kind of like going, I, I guess this is what I'm doing. I never wanted it to be like a line in the sand for him. Mm-hmm. I always wanted his departure from that group to be complicated the same way that um, people in you know codependent relationships think they're going to die if they're not with that person anymore or you know codependent relationship with a, with a parent or whatever it is there's something that is um, addictive by nature in that relationship therefore like when it's challenged or contested like when when Julie uh, Danielle's character says to me you know they're using you and I said I don't like he doesn't say it that way at all he says they've given me a great life They've given me a tattoo studio. They've given me, you know, um, they give me a house. They give me beer. They tell me how, how good I am at beating people up. That's what a parent is. Um, and he's so, he's so kind of um, lost in that, in that, in that kind of addictive, um, cyclical relationship that it's, he can't even see the forest from the trees. You know, it's very hard for him to extract himself Emotionally, regardless of like morally, if it's right or wrong, mm-hmm. emotionally he's he's kind of chemically um, bonded to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think that that I always kind of uh, enjoyed those scenes. I thought that it was an interesting um, dissection of human nature, um, and I was always I was always trying to get guy to allow me to go to hold it longer, to hold him being, having a foot in this world, just keep him in it for as much as we can. It's more believable that way. Um, and so, I, you know, I think, I think in the end, we, we, we both kind of got what we wanted. Um, oh, well, you had me mesmerized. I was mesmerized watching that internal dilemma um, right. that you were bringing right. to the character. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are complex things. I mean, you know, it's, all the while, while me and Danielle were like would work together, and we do a lot of rehearsals, especially with the, with the kids, um, and try and feel like that was a family that had lived together for, for a while. And um, I think we were always acutely aware, both me and Danielle, we were like, 
we're doing these we're, we're kind of doing these turns as, as actors and these characters and we're always kind of acutely aware that we're not necessarily good moral characters mm-hmm. so like what, what's a good kind of model for, for us to kind of base our characters off or performances from and I I constantly kept going back to Sid and Nancy um, all the time I was always just referencing Sid and Nancy with, with, with her begging her to like watch the movie and um, begging other people to watch the film it's such a bizarre movie because these are people who are kind of a little bit morally reprehensible totally self-destructive and yet to each other they both appear completely rational human beings whereas mm-hmm. we see them as completely irrational human beings um, and for me and, and Guy was always acutely aware of this is I would question the screenplay and, and the motives of certain characters um, and why they would do things and he would say because they're not like you Jamie they're not <laughs> they're not adjusted rational human beings as much as you are you know like they're, they're just not they are they live in a different stratosphere mm-hmm. and um, I, I I became acutely aware of that and we, we tuned our performances to try and to try and replicate that I think it's, it's very complicated because you're, you're always holding these characters in some form of judgment mm-hmm. and, and I think as an actor you're always told not to do that but in this it's for this, it felt extremely complicated to not. You mm-hmm. know, um, you had to be aware of what, how people were perceiving what you were doing and your actions. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the one of the things that, that I kept feeling the the closer it got to Brian saying, "I'm out, I'm out," was he was trying to find the moment to forgive himself enough to move on. Right. <coughs> I mean that I. I found that, to, thank you, I found that to be extremely, you know, that was really speaking to me. Right. That he was trying to, think, to yeah, forgive think, himself. You know, that, that is a, a lifetime sentence for him, that, you know, that uh, idea. The idea of allowing himself to go, you know, I was a kid, just like this other kid brought up the street, no life, given some kind of relative structure and... Um, a roof and a hot meal uh, even though I was indoctrinated by all these lies about bloodlines and great warriors and the Norse gods and everything everything like that which is just nonsense utter garbage um, he's been sold a lie you know that was how I kind of tried to justify it was that he's been he's been betrayed by these people he, he held in such high esteem and it doesn't matter what kind of position you're in or what kind of company you're keeping as on a human level if there are if the people that you look up to that you kind of idolize like he idolizes fred he, he loves this ma character um when you realize that they're not all they seem to be and they're, they're you know they're not these great people the flaw falls out from under you it just does i mean i you know i've had my versions of that i'm sure you've had your versions of that um it's a really hard lesson to learn mm-hmm. um and in his circumstance when when you learn that and you try to ex, you know extricate yourself and then the the threat to your life is, is, is kind of put on you and, and your family it's these are these are extreme worlds and mm-hmm. extreme action you know it's it's always interesting for an actor when he's playing not only a real person but a real person who is living a real person whom he has spoken with about tackling his persona. Um, did you have any kind of trepidation with this role in in how you were going to portray Brian as to how he would take it? 
how he would feel. Was there, you know, any kind of difficulty or challenge with that in this particular character? Such a, a good, I mean, for example, I mean, um, like with someone like Bernie Taupin, you know, um, I was so afraid of him seeing the movie because he's such a good man. <laughs> he's such a good guy. He's mm-hmm. someone who is allowing, accepting, loyal, loving. You know, he's all the things I aspire to be. You know, he's, he's all the things I think we should all aspire to be. He was a very ahead of his time. He's a poet. He's a romantic, sometimes a hopeless romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, and it's, it's a legacy for him. So that, the sta- for some reason, the stakes of that feel so much higher in terms of what the person thinks than this. That's not to diminish Brian's life experience, which is worthy of, you know, like... He's lived a life, it's his life, they're his choices, but it's his life nonetheless. Um, but it's, it's so much more um, complicated than that with, with this part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like the character doesn't have an end, in a way. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the character doesn't fully, really wrap up. But that's because I, I, just, I don't think that um, life isn't that way. His life is still ongoing. His life is still unfolding. He's still coming to terms with the things he's done he's still reckoning with his guilt and um, that, that's, that, that, that's a lifetime sentence it, it just is um, I think what he, what, he, what he chooses to do now it will be his you know, will be his kind of lasting legacy he's chosen to go back to school he's chosen to help people reform themselves he's choosing to you know, reach out to the community I think that that's, those are very noble choices and hopefully he can um, continue to do that Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious, Jamie, because you being a father, does that impact how you approach a role like this? Because, in many respects, this is a cautionary tale to parents um, in the path that that their child can take, the the influences that are out there, and then here you have these young children. Uh, you know, who belong to Julie, and you're trying to protect them from what what Brian has been brought up with. And I'm just yeah. curious if that impacts you, being a father yourself, how you interpret and how you treat this entire film. Well, I mean, I, I certainly think that uh, in terms of men and young boys and, uh, you know, that, that kind of pivotal age, the 14, 15, 16, the, you know, the adolescence, how important it is to have a good male role model. Um, I grew up without a father, um, and I, I, I feel the, the kind of, the kind of inner anguish and, and torment of that, um, constantly. I think I'm always kind of applying that to the characters that I play, like there's always some kind of yearning, you know, there's always some kind of, not, something not quite there, or some kind of reaching. Um, and I think in Brian's case, this, this, this is exactly the effect of, of the absence of a good male role model, you know. Um, what I like is that, in a way, it's kind of bookended at the end of the film, after he's been through the, the, the treatment and, and, uh, and the skin has changed and he's clear of uh, all his old tattoos. But then when the door opens, he's looking at the future. He's looking at his son. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there, there lies the kind of the moral issue here is... is is hatred and bigotry 
are um, inherited. It's learned behavior. No one is born a racist. You, you learn to be racist. You learn to be hateful. Um, and you learn to be violent, you know. And the question is, like, it's taken off of his face, yes. But what lies beneath? What future is this boy going to have? What kind of man is he going to be for this kid? Mm-hmm. Is he going to be able to do it? And, that, you know, I think that's, that's the question. That's the conversation starter. That's, that's where... Um, that's where we leave him. I, 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 I would much prefer that um, as, as a, a kind of closing statement of the film. Like, what do you, you know, what if? Mm-hmm. I think it is a very interesting um, place to be. But certainly, kids and, and love and, um, you know, responsibility of taking care of something so vulnerable is certainly uh, a trigger for him to get out. Mm-hmm. It just is. Uh, undeniable. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of physicality in this film. I know you never shy away from physicality in your films. Right. Was was there anything particularly physically demanding? Because some of these scenes are so, you know, there are a lot of fight scenes. And I know coming off of Donnie Brook, where I know you did a lot of your own a lot of your own work. Another extremely physical film. Um, was there anything, you know, how, how did that take a toll on you, on your body with this one? Well, it was exhausting because I wasn't in particularly very good shape, <laughs> you know, because, because I'd added like almost 20 pounds to my frame. What I could usually probably do, like, a few, you know, a few takes of fight scenes and be okay and be able to go again. Like, even just after a couple of takes, I would be really gassed out just because I was, my, I was carrying that extra weight and, I hadn't been living particularly healthily. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it's such an important part of the character. Like, this this is a man who um, led with violence. Um, that was what he was good at. That's what he was revo- uh, rewarded for. That's what he was heralded for. Um, you know, I mean, the local authorities knew him. They, they pinpointed him as the man... Um, of the group who would be the one to incite the violence. He would throw the first punch. He'd usually throw the last one as well. And he would, um, you know, use razors and all kinds of kind of horrible, horrible things. Um, so it was, it's obviously an important component to the character. I mean, for me as an actor doing that, I, I really dislike fight scenes. They're just mostly because I don't like exercise. <laughs> They're exhausting to do. They take a long time. Um, it's not as interesting as acting, uh, you know, in, in kind of dialogue scenes. Um, but it was such an important component for the character that um, we, we, you know, we, we kind of had to pay a little bit more attention to it than I would have liked. But um, but you got to play with a really cute dog. Yeah, that dog is huge. <laughs> that dog is massive. I mean, to be uh, to be honest, I kind of that was something I just kind of completely unaddressed with myself, which was like, I think I'm actually really scared of this dog. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, because it's not your dog. You don't know him. Like, you met him the first day of shooting, and you're supposed to have had the dog for like five years. You know, but like, I don't like, I don't necessarily trust this dog, or I don't know who the owner is, or what kind of an owner he is, and what he expects this dog to do. I mean, it was really. Um, because uh, Guy would always be like, yeah, just throw him the thing. Like, put your hand in his mouth. I'd be like, what? <laughs> you put your hand in his mouth. <laughs> um, I don't want to do that. I personally um, think that dog is bigger than you at your normal fighting weight. No, easily. That dog definitely weighs more than I do at my usual 
for sure. Without question, he's huge. And I would be, I would be so conscious of the kids around this dog, you know, because you know they're kids, so they just think it's a movie. Nothing bad's going to happen. Like it's, it's a dog. It's a cute dog. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, oh god, please don't, like don't eat the kids, please don't eat the kids. Um, but um, no, to be honest, the dog was incredibly tam and just loved eating food. Well, you have an amazing chemistry with the dog on screen, if that makes you feel better. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm really excited. It, it really comes across that you two have been best friends um, and, and that Boss was truly Brian's true companion in life. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I always saw it as like you know, and I don't, I'm not comparing these these two performances at all. But like, th- I saw so much similarity between on the waterfront and this movie. It's Brando with the birds, you know, like mm-hmm. you see like this kind of like ruffian who has this like tender heart. Like there's something that he actually cares for. There's something that he takes time out of his day to really um, tend to. And um, for me, I really thought that was an important component, knowing where the journey of the film was going. That you managed to see that this is a guy who um, he, he could care for something. He could uh, extend compassion to this animal and give it food and give it affection and give it love. Yeah. Hopefully that was something that Julie could see and go, oh no, this guy has a heart. Like there's something in there. And that was my exclusive with Jamie Bell. And Skin will be in theaters this Friday, July 26th. Um, it also stars Mike Coulter as Daryl Jenkins, Vera Farmiga as Ma or Shireen, uh, depending on who she's talking to in the film. Uh, Bill Camp, the incomparable Bill Camp as Fred Krager, the leader of the neo-Nazi group of which Brian is a member, the family of which he is a part of. And outstanding performance, and you heard Jamie talk about it. Um, Dan, uh, Danielle McDonald. We have seen so much of Danielle of late. Bird Box, Patty Cakes, Extracurricular Activities, Dumplin'. I first took note of her back in 2013 with Clark Gregg's, uh, Clark Gregg-directed film, Trust Me. She is amazing. And here she plays Julie, a woman with three kids, and she doesn't want them exposed to this, the violence of Brian's life. But he falls in love with the kids and with her. And, uh, and vice versa. So it's very interesting to see how her love and, and the children help drive him to make his decisions in life. But the authenticity, the gritty realism, the brutality, and it is visually handheld, natural light, angles. Um, Arnaud Potier is the cinematographer. And hopefully next Monday we'll have time that you can hear from Guy Nativ, our interview with uh, Guy, the director. In the meantime, it will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net sometime this week. Uh, But again, Skin, please, I I can't recommend it heartily enough. And right now we're going to switch gears and we're going to welcome the very talented writer, director, editor, Adam Marino. Hi, Adam. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, I am thrilled to have you on the show. Um, This is quite an interesting film that you have put together here. Ring, ring. Thank you. And, you know, it's a thriller. Has a little bit of a horror bent to it. Um, Yep. 
And then it actually, you feel a comedic beat as well. Uh, because yeah, I was going to say that. Uh, because Murphy's Law kicks in here at every turn with our two protagonists, uh, Amber and Will. Anything that can go wrong right. will go wrong with these two. And you, <laughs> you right. have to chuckle at part of this while the horrific parts are unfolding. Um, right. Briefly, tell everybody what Ring Ring is about, since the story idea is also yours. Sure. Um, well, it starts off with a couple of telemarketers, Will and Amber, um, Kirby Blanton and Malcolm Goodwin, um, who are pretty much, they're good friends. They work at a telemarketing company. They get fired by Luke Ferrigno, and they come up with this plan to, to steal their telemarketing clients to create their own business. So when they go through this Mission Impossible kind of scheme and uh, capture all of the clients on Will's cell phone, they go to a bar and party that night and they get a little too happy, a little too drunk, and Will ends up losing the phone. So um, the whole film really revolves around finding this phone, and what happens is they, they get they get to this house where the Uber driver who took them to the to get their phone is actually the guy who stole the phone. So it's a kind of a, a little bit of a coincidence, but it's done in a way where it's, it's rather smooth and fluid and it feels natural. And right when they get to the house, they, they find themselves kind of having to break in and I just want to leave it there. I don't want to talk about it yeah. too much. Yeah, all we can they, say uh, is they, they're in trouble. Yeah, yeah they, they have a hard time getting out. <laughs> yeah, they're in trouble. You know, and the way you structure yeah. this film, that's the way you break this out visually. Because as you open the film, we see somebody putting on eyelashes, putting on lipstick, uh, you know, putting on right. on makeup, you know, putting uh, earrings on. And you see this very fashionable woman go out walking in the street in a business district, and you have no clue who this right. woman is. It definitely has a Norman Bates psycho kind of element. Very, very strong Norman Bates thematic happening here. And I got to tell that you, was unintentional. Uh, <laughs> I I got to tell you, Tommy. Uh, Tommy, is it Kaijus? Tommy Kia, he's Kida. also the producer as well. As okay, the Tommy yeah. plays Jacob, and Jacob right. is Jacob is he's our Uber driver. It's fair to say, right? Jacob is our Uber driver, and Jacob has a Correct. few issues of his own. He is an addict to the nth degree, and then some. Right. Um, right. But Tommy's performance as Jacob, you know, he keeps popping up. We see him in his gray, right. you know, hoodie, and we never see his right. full face. We just see like a profile. It's not until after he drops Amber and Will at this house, where the phone tracker has right. sent them, that we finally see his face. So you you're never right. quite sure who he is and what he's it's a doing. Slow build. It's a very slow build, and you have all these moving parts, but you're honing in and focusing on the primary characters, the characters of Amber, the characters of Will, right after they come up with this insane plan to steal the client names from their company and start their own company. I mean, the hijinks right. start there. With anything right. that can go wrong, will go wrong. So Correct. you set the tone where, okay, these are not the greatest <laughs> minds in the world that we're working with. Um, but they no, have, they have good ideas. Their own way. <laughs> 
was perfect in the film, that's for sure. <laughs> but And I, I love the way that you said, okay, after a night of a little too much partying, I have to give you credit. Yeah. This is one of the most graphic morning after the night before scenes I have ever seen. Oh my God! Thank you. <laughs> not too many people I'm happy will. To get any emotions out of you? Not too many people will go to the lengths that you went to to visually capture what happens after a night of partying. And oh, and thank you. We you... put a lot of work into it. <laughs> Uh, I think it's safe to I think it's safe to say everybody out there listening, you've all had one or two of these nights in your life, so you you know what I'm talking about. So I'm curious how that's you. That's another reason why we did it. <laughs> it's very relatable. Because everyone everyone can relate to this. Everyone can relate. I, I feel like most of everyone I've spoken to has some sort of situation with either losing their phone or having to track it or something, and it's just it's such a common thing nowadays. Yes, but the best part is the bathroom. Oh. <laughs> oh that's God. where you <laughs> went you went full bore there adam to give us the graphic <laughs> the graphic morning after scene uh and oh, then i gotta say kudos yeah. to malcolm goodwin who plays will he went there oh, as well fantastic. he went there yeah so, everyone was fantastic I, I couldn't be happier with the cast now i've got to ask you with this morning after bathroom scene um, this was sure, not vi- sure. this was not visual effects that you used, was it? No, we we did some sort of trickery, um, old school um, cinematography, if you will. Um, we we just kind of did like a little uh, a one take gag where we had like a a cup of fake throw up like in the sink. So like he goes down and comes up, and it's like all in one time. So it just felt pretty real and natural. And his delivery was just perfect. And like, of course, planned it any better. It's all over the floor too. <laughs> It's all over the floor. It's all over the floor. I mean, it it, it looked, no no offense to Campbell's, but, you know, it looked like cream of mushroom soup with peas thrown in there. Uh, I don't even want to know. It's just the authenticity of that one scene. That was like, okay. All right. It, it, to be honest, it was it was more oatmeal based at first, and I'm like, you know what? It needs, it needs more. What do we got in crafty? <laughs> <laughs> we dug deep to make it look as real as possible. Um, you <laughs> definitely did. You succeeded. You you oh, succeeded. Thank you. thank you. And then to watch poor Will with this horrid hangover, um, oh. and, and trying to figure out you know where his phone is, and it's it, right. This is where Kirby Bliss Blanton is just so good. And we're seeing her in so many things lately, and I'm thrilled. She's actually going to do the show next week to talk about. Oh, awesome. Yeah, to talk about Ring Ring. Um, as, Am- <laughs> as Amber, she is, she's the one who's really trying to lead the way here and think things yeah, through. She's, yeah, she's the one leading the, the story pretty much. She's the... She's the boss. <laughs> yeah, well, the boss runs into a few problems. Uh, yeah, you know, Will, Will's uh, the more manipulated character. He's he's uh, a little bit of a pushover, as you can see. He kind of it, it all builds up, and he uh, he kind of can't doesn't want to take it anymore. And, and I think he has a nice little character arc towards the end. He really does. He really does. Um, you know, and and again, we don't want to give away too much about what happens once they get to this house right. um right but we have to talk about the house 
your location scouting, finding this house, and then Justin Patton's production design. Because this house is very much character in the film. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, without the house. Beautiful house. Oh, my. Uh, the exterior is gorgeous. Now, how much set dress yeah, did, you, okay. did you have to do on the inside? Because you, it's very dark. Right. You can tell it's been in a family for generations. It's dark wood. You can almost, almost smell right. the mildew and musty mustiness of oh, it oh yeah it's, it's actually believe it or not it's like um it's it's such an old house it's somewhat of a museum kind of piece and it's actually currently an airbnb there's this guy who lives upstairs and he just rents it out to filmmakers to the people that are in town who wanted to stay here for the night and it has such a, a big history to, um about it and it's pretty untouched we, we added like a couple elements possibly like the tv and some debris around the house but and for the most of it, it was it was pretty much set in stone, and we just kind of played around it. And that's interesting because you mentioned the TV, and the TV is really the only modern thing we see in this house. Even going into a right. bedroom um, with perfume bottles and things, they're all vintage. It's right. it's all yep. vintage with with the bubble, the bubble yep. glass. And uh, the bead. We, we found it so interesting. We were like, let's let's just show as much as we can of this house. It's just there's so much going on. It's just it was overwhelming. <laughs> uh, it's just everywhere the camera goes, everywhere Naaman, uh, everywhere Stephen uh, points the camera. There's something right. else that we're seeing, and I love the fact that the two of you make great use of ne- of negative space that's created by these dark woods and these heavy, heavy velvet or tapestry draperies because it creates such darkness but then you bring out texture within that negative space i love that thank thank you for for noting that steve mangerton was an amazing amazing cinematographer as well as a great friend of mine so that i think that helped a lot because we were we're so connected as as our our friendship so that definitely helped with the collaboration We, we would sit like days in days out just going through every little scene and we were on the same page, which is a huge key in, in making a movie. And uh, that was a really uh, big, good blessing to have. Yeah, I mean, it's because once we are in that house, and we're in that house for three quarters of the film. Um, right. Oh, yeah. And everywhere you turn, we see something different, experience something different. But even the the leather furniture with the with the metal brad edgings on it that screams right. 1920s. Um, oh yeah. You know, it's you feel there's something creepy about the house, and that nothing oh good God. is ever going to happen like here. Says, oh yeah, it's totally a character in the film. It, 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 it breathes its own life, and it's just like you said, without the house, it would probably be a different movie. <laughs> and of course, you've got very. So I'm curious how you, the navigation uh, with lighting and camera. Did you even bring lights in, or did you, did you just go with natural lighting? Because I'm noticing these are very small passageways and hallways, especially as you go down into the basement. Yeah, we we wanted to play pretty natural. Um, We uh, wanted to use as much natural light as possible, um, pretty much uh, with with lamps and and windows. Yeah, we had a couple lights, but we we wanted to uh, replicate the natural light as much as possible and Mm -hmm. keep it pretty real. And I think that was a a part that we were trying to um, remain consistent. And that was something that we, we just kind of we had to keep checking on. Like, is it natural? Is it is it right? And and I, I made sure that that was looking, you know, good throughout the film. Cause that was a big uh, concern of mine, making it seem a little too fake or a little, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Now, realistic. It works beautifully. And what it also does in terms of the lighting and the camera angles, thanks to the narrow passageways and the way Stephen is angling things, also very right. metaphoric for the characters. We feel the claustrophobia. Right. We feel uh, ha- the, the fear of Amber and Will that they are truly trapped. The walls are closing in right. on them. They can't get out. Oh, yeah. We feel, mm-hmm. and that one take, that one take really set the tone of like the dim- dimensions of the house too. I, I'm like, I want to do a one take just so, just so we can set up the house so people can be like, okay, this is how big it is. This is where what we're dealing with because it's so hard to, to you know, um, document a house like this. It was just so big. Mm-hmm. No, I, it's but, yeah. but it, it really the way that you use light and your angles really sets up incredible metaphor for. Amber and Will for Jacob. I mean, just fabulous. Fabulous. Um, and of course, you, you pick Thank you, so much. you pick Halloween to tell this story <laughs> on. Hello. Uh, uh, was, was second nature, actually. Uh, that, that was a story beat that we're like, you know what? We wanted her to escape, and but we're like, but, but somehow taken back from him but like you know just doesn't seem natural unless it was halloween wait a minute halloween that's a genius idea (laughs) that's the perfect setting for the story and it just it just made such a an interesting beat for when um she tries to escape which i won't say any more than that but it just made a really fun and interesting scene for that and it just it helped develop the story as a whole so we're that was a lucky little find. Well, I think it's safe to say, since we've already set this up as a thriller with it with some horror elements to it there is blood there is definitely blood. There Not is... as much as you would think in a horror film. No. Oh, blood. no. And I think that's one of the great. <laughs> that's one of the great things that you do here, Adam, is you restrained yourself. You held back so that it's not just a, a gore. It's not a blood and gore film. This is. No. It's a thriller. It's a cat and mouse psychological <laughs> game. It's a thriller. Right. And like a dark comedy thriller. Very dark, very dark. And of course, I love how you pull in yeah. certain elements into the film. We see, you know, nail guns, and the first thing I thought of was, ah, Lethal Weapon Two. Um, <laughs> love that one. <laughs> so you have these great little nods in there um, to things yeah. that stand out. Just tiny little, be it a set piece, be it a moment in other films. These little things come into play, and it's fabulous. There's there is something yeah, that everyone can latch on to. Awesome. That's, that that makes me happy to hear. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. With with the ho- the whole Halloween setup and all. Um. Mm-hmm. You know how challenging because you're doing it and. You're doing it in daylight, no less. You're not doing Halloween at night. Oh You're doing Halloween in daylight, which makes this yeah, adds a level version. of absurdity. Right. <laughs> it's right the calm before the storm. Yeah. You know, was it was it intentional to do have Halloween in the daylight uh, and not night? To be I to be honest, ET was a huge reference. We wanted to get that kind of like sunset, kind of like it's still day. It's turning into night kind of feel. And, um, yeah, that, that was the approach we, we initially started with. And then we, we just wanted to kind of, like, so get darker as the night went through just to build it up a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. You know, how challenging but, uh, how challenging was putting this cast together, Adam? Because I love the cast. I mean, you've got Kirby. You've got Malcolm Goodwin. Um, if anybody has not seen the iZombie TV series, find it, find it, find it, uh, and check yeah. it out. Josh Zuckerman. Great, great show. Josh Zuckerman, uh, who plays their bestie, Jason. I've been watching him forever. Sex Drive, Surviving oh Chris. Sex Drive, yes. Sex Drive is hilarious with Seth Green. That um, was one of my favorites. I couldn't believe we had a chance to work with him. and He was honestly one of the nicest people on set, um, as well as the whole crew was pretty much the nicest people you could ever imagine. But Josh Zuckerman, he just gave so much to the table. He would just... He would just improvise and just give, he would just have so many things to just run by me and, and we just had so much fun together. Oh, I mean, he, you know, he's got a small part, but it's a, a significant part. Uh, but it's so oh, yeah. fun to see him. And then you've got Tommy. Absolutely. Tommy, who just yeah. blows your mind. Um, oh, now my God. You, and you've worked with Tommy on another film. You've worked with him on Beneath the Leaves. We did. We did. We did. We gave him. A, he had a little, a tiny role there, which didn't give him any justice. So we, uh, we round two, we we really opened up his uh, <laughs> his acting portfolio. You know, and then you get Lou Ferrigno involved. He comes in as a producer, and he plays the boss. Now, how fun is that for you to get uh, Lou Ferrigno producing your film? Oh my God, that was that was a treat. Um, I, when, I, when I heard that, I was like, Oh my God, this is going to be perfect. Um, obviously, I was a little intimidated going in. He is the Hulk. <laughs> But he is honestly one of the nicest guys. Again, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And all the cast was really just just listening and wanting to just, they trusted me. I trusted them. It was just a huge collaboration and, and good vibes all around. So, um, but yeah, yeah. Lou was, was a treat to have on set. And what's interesting is his character is the big boss at, at the company where he's just, he's just fired everybody at the end of the week. Get your checks. Yeah. You're going bye-bye. He is. He plays against type because he is such a nice guy, and we know in real life he is a nice guy. And he is just oh, yeah. a total jerk. He's <laughs> mean. He's nasty. He's demanding. He's rude. Um, right. uh, really fun to see him real play with this role. Yeah, he had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I don't know what his inspiration was, but uh, I heard there might have been a little Trump in there or something. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but there was. <laughs> All I know is he, he just he, he crushed the role, and he uh, he was so professional, and he had the whole thing memorized, and it was just it, it was it was perfect. <laughs> now, have you ever worked it worked with an actor who is so well prepared? He's got everything memorized. He's totally off book, and uh, you know there are no no qualms, no questions. Let's just shoot. We're done. Boom. Yeah, no, like a lot of, a lot of, yeah, most of my actors are, are well prepared. They're, you know, obviously there's some of the actors that want to put their own little nuance into it, and I'm, I'm always open to that. I want the character to be as natural as possible. So when they have ideas like that, I love to hear them, and I, I love to give them a chance to come out because that, I think that's the best. Um, it's like a little, it's magic when that happens because you don't expect it. It's not in the script, but it feels natural, and it actually could enhance the script too because. You don't want the actors to be stiff playing something that they don't feel comfortable playing. Mm -hmm. So I kind of make it, I make their world as comfortable as possible within the the script's uh, parameters. Now, I'm curious, Adam, because you're also an editor, you're co-editor on this one. Being being editor, did that help you while you're shooting in terms of 
could you see in your mind's eye how you wanted a scene to oh, look yeah. so you could change things up on the fly if you needed to eliminate shooting some coverage stuff that you knew you weren't going to need? How does that work with for you? Completely, you, you pretty much said it. Um, that it comes so handy when when say we we had something set up. Oh no, we can't shoot there. So I'm like. Mm. How can I cut that out and, and flip that around and make it work? I'm like cutting it in my head the whole time, rearranging it um, to uh, making it work to to the to the day. So if there's something that we don't have that day or something, I'm always cutting, um, adjusting, and and if I wasn't an editor, I, I don't know if I would be able to get the, the same do the same job. So it actually is a huge benefit for for my process. Mm-hmm. Well, something that definitely we have to talk about is the film's title, Ring Ring, uh, which there are a lot of a lot of ringing doorbells at this house throughout the movie. Let's yeah. just let's just put it's it that way. Marketing and the doorbells. A lot of a lot of and now is that doorbell sound? Did you have to create and jury rig uh, the doorbell sound? Because every time the doorbell rings, you cut to this great shot of an antique. Uh, doorbell system, or is that actually in that house? It was literally in the house, and I'm like, we have to capture this thing. <laughs> like, this is this is our movie right here. Well, um, that we, ring, we it, like right under the. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it was it was just a blessing in disguise. <laughs> and of course, you had to call it ring ring because we've got people calling Uber. We got people losing phones. Oh my god, we've got nonstop traffic coming to the front door of that house. Um. So many reasons why we should call it ring ring. It's just it, it it works in many ways, more than one. Yeah, and it's not till the third, late in the third act, that we actually get you tie up all the loose ends, and you've got a couple, a one really really big reveal that comes out. And right, I right. did not see that coming. Oh, nice. That's I, good. <laughs> you know, there were some hints earlier. But my mind went right. to much darker places than what what actually comes out. Um, wow. And that, I think, really adds to um, part of the misunderstanding of Jacob, our poor little Uber driver in his little gray hoodie. It explains <laughs> so much about yeah. him. Uh, exactly, and I really it justifies his situation. It, it to a degree, it justifies his situation. He, to a degree, obviously, you can't really justify. Yeah, what he did, but you can see why how he got into the situation and how he naturally isn't the way he is because he wants to be. He just happened to fall into the situation naturally. And of course, I'd be remiss not to ask you about your music. Attila's mu- the oh, music God. is great. It's Amazing. I, I was so fortunate to have Attila uh, with us. He he did Beneath the Leaves with us, and mm-hmm. he completely crushed it in that film. But this film is its own little thing. It, it's completely different than the music he did in Beneath the Leaves, and it just it, it, it spoke to the film in such a way. It, again, it made a character out of it in, in its own right, just like the house. Mm-hmm. So, like, between the music, the house, the acting, it just it all came together. You know, how challenging was it to get the right tone with the music, because we have the thriller element, we have the comedic element, we have uh, the horror element. So you have all these different vibes that are happening. Right. 
And, uh, you know, sometimes you can just go overboard with the whole insidious soundtrack, you know, that's really right. dark, dark and deep. Right. Or you could go into sure. a, a lighter comedic tone. But here, Attila really plays right. with the tonal themes through music. And I'm, I'm curious how difficult that was for the two of you to find that balance. Oh yeah, it was it was definitely difficult. Um, I had a couple of references. I think one was office space for the first part, and the second part was more like "Don't breathe" or "Get out" kind of feel. Mm-hmm. And um, we, I, I had all these references like lined up on on the track, and then I went to a studio and we kind of like obviously we, we didn't copy it, but it was in the spirit of that those vibes. So we took the the tone of that and created our own completely different rhythm and vibe and everything, but he knew exactly where I wanted it to be comedic and where I wanted it to be dark. And he completely surprised me. I, I didn't, I just sat back and like a couple of weeks later, he showed me what he had. I'm like, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a beautiful compliment to your visual tonal bandwidth and your emotional beats oh in the God. performances. Um, really Thank nicely you. done package, Adam. Very nicely done. Thank you. Thank you. And I actually sang a song in that one scene where Tommy's uh, smoking the tinfoil with the lights on his face. Me and Attila, uh, we collaborated on that one. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. It was, I don't know, it was funny. No one knows, though. Now, now they know, but <laughs> little secret. <laughs> so now this premiered over the weekend at Arena Cine Lounge. It's now available, Ring Ring is now available on Amazon Video. Any other platforms, or right. where can people find it? Uh, right now, it's strictly on Amazon. Uh, we wanted to have an exclusive kind of release. Uh, maybe down the line, we'll release it on other platforms. But as of now, um, you could rent it and buy it on Amazon. We have uh, Instagram and Facebook where you can see all the new details and updates on everything. We actually we're working on getting a Blu-ray as well, which will be out in a couple months. So you can probably buy that as well on Amazon. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty exclusive. Beneath the Leaves is everywhere. Other film, you can find it on iTunes. Netflix, it's just everywhere, but this one is a lot more private and exclusive. And, you know, and it's a quick watch, people. It's, what, 72 minutes? It, it's, yeah. it's a it, very... It doesn't feel that way either. No. Time, time flies, and when it's over, you sit there and you go, I want more. I want more. Yeah. Um, sequel comes in. <laughs> I want, yeah, I would love to see a sequel of this. Especially with Oblivious, <laughs> Oblivious Jason... Seeing Amber and Will, right? and he's clueless. He's clueless. I would like to see Josh Zuckerman more involved in this one, as well as Lou. We could, we could give them more of a role. Yes, <laughs> I would love that. Well, unfortunately, Adam, we are all out of time on the show today. This has been a real joy oh, no having you on. And I'm so, as I said, Kirby, Kirby's on next week at 1130. Okay, perfect. I'm going to tune in. And could I give one shout-out to Naaman Barsoom and Daniel Walner? I just... I, Without them, we couldn't have made this project. Yes, your your screenwriters, your screenwriters who picked yeah. up on your uh, a very original and creative story. Yeah, without them, they're they're like brothers to me, and, and we're we're a power force together. And I just wanted to put their names out there because, uh, I you know, without them, this wouldn't have happened. So, but thank you so much for having me on your show, and I I can't wait to come back on. And oh my god, hopefully we'll have something else for you. Absolutely, <laughs> get to work, and of course. You know, Ring Ring gets more love next week with Kirby, so... Yes, well, I'm looking forward to that one. All right. Thanks, Adam. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. And that was Adam Marino, co-writer, director, editor of Ring Ring. 
And seriously, people, it's a good time watching this film. It's not a raucous comedy or a raucous dark comedy. You do have your... It's it's a down and out... It's, it's a straight up thriller with horror elements and dark comedic elements. Uh, as I said, Murphy's Law, whatever can go wrong, will go wrong for our heroes, Amber and Will. So that is all the time we have today. Thank you, Adam Marino. And I hope everyone enjoyed our exclusive with Jamie Bell. Again, Skin is in theaters uh, this Friday. See it, see it, see it. Next week, Kirby Bliss Stanton's going to be here talking about Wishman and Skin. And Rick Alverson is going to be joining us talking about a, a film that just blew my mind, The Mountain, starring... Jeff Goldblum, and Ty Sheridan. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 